Hi, and thank you to Lucy and to History and Policy for the invitation to speak today. Um, I first participated in History and Policy during my PhD, and it was a, it was a great experience, and I don't think so far today it's been any less. Um, the first thing I want to say is that after listening to the first session, there were a lot of things that I wish I'd included. <laughs> but we only have 15 minutes, and so you're going to get a condensed version of what I've got to say on the topic. So my talk is going to look at the rebuilding of British city centers after the Second World War in order to provide us with an outstanding historic example of what happens when cities are empowered with making their own plans, in this case for reconstruction, what the difficulties and issues were around this autonomy, and how the plans reflected contemporary ideas of progress. I'm not just going to focus on the historic notion of progress, though, because since the general election, we also now need to look at how this historic example provides lessons for the idea of devolution to cities. I'm going to begin with just a basic background to reconstruction planning in city centers during and after the Second World War. For starters, government ideas of the necessity for planning for reconstruction began and then evolved from the start of bombing around 1940. And by the end of the war in Europe, the coalition government had outlined how they expected cities to prepare for reconstruction. Wartime reports were prepared um, under Barlow, Scott, and Uthwat affected legislative outcomes, and the initial culmination of the recommendations in those reports was the 1944 Town and Country Planning Act. Now, a large part of the point of the 1944 Act was an attempt to resolve the special problems faced by bomb-damaged cities, such as compensation, betterment, and land use. But the 1944 Act was only a stopgap measure, and so after the war, when the Attlee government took their initial steps into physical planning, to correct the problems in the 1944 Act was a top agenda item. That led to the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, and I'm sure many of you, if you're, if you're working within anything that remotely related to planning, realize that the, the new planning and land use requirements imposed by the 1944 Act have affected cities and regions so profoundly that the Act's impact can still be seen and felt today. What these two important planning acts gave to cities was the authority and the requirement to plan their own physical layout. The result in, within these cities is a great lesson for today in a number of ways. In the brief time I have, I'm just going to go through a few of what I've identified as the key outcomes from my research that have lessons for today for how change is made or for how change is blocked and for this current plan of city devolution. First, I'm going to talk about individual ideas, individual ideas about priorities, progress, and what should happen in each city had key impacts on what did happen in post-war cities. Where these individuals had more or less power determined the extent of the impact of their individual priorities. Second, that in no case were harmonious decisions made about the future of individual cities. I know that's unsurprising, but it's important to examine. Third, that economic pressures in the post-war period impacted the rebuilding of cities in a myriad of ways, and of course today's experience is going to be similar but different. And finally, that societal ideas in the post-war period about progress and priorities played an important part in decisions that were taken, yet today we would frown on many or most of the ideas put forward then as crucial 
to physically successful cities, but we must take those ideas seriously. So first, individual impacts. It's easy to assume that decisions within cities, usually approved by councils as groups, were made collectively. But archival evidence shows this was, not, was often not the case. And I'll use some specific examples from cities I've studied in depth to show how important it is to be aware of such outliers, or better yet, perhaps to consider how to temper their individual impact. In one case, I found that the town clerk of an important southern city brought his own agenda to the planning table which included a topmost priority to build more commercial and retail space in order to increase the rates charged and put funds into city coffers, which were admittedly heavily impacted by bombing. But the records show that this individual was fairly ruthless and certainly uncaring of historic or aesthetic impacts, much less the environment. And the city lost a significant amount of its historic core, which might have been saved. Granted, it was government legislation that allowed this to happen, or much of it to happen, but it was at the local level that the council seems to have acquiesced to this person's priorities and gone ahead with plans that have had lasting impacts on the city core in many ways. My second example is from a northern city which had a number of physical issues to resolve that had stemmed from its growth and the impact of the Industrial Revolution. In this city's case, one particular businessman who sat on the city council brought his very strong personality into the democratic decision-making process and not only stalled the plans through ongoing objections, but impacted the result as well. In many ways, this is ironic because to our 21st century viewpoint, it turns out to be a good thing. Much of the city was envisioned for a massive overhaul, as you can see from the top slide. Um, but in the end, and it, they would have taken out lots of historic streets and buildings, but in the end, the businessman's agenda, which had nothing to do with saving anything historic, meant that the plans weren't implemented. Another example, actually, is a place where, and it's one of the very, very few examples in Britain, where most of the plans were implemented. M most of the cities actually didn't manage to implement plans from wartime. But in Plymouth, it's a, it's a good example of individual impact because Lord Astor, who's seen in the picture above, made it his mission to ensure that the center of the city was rebuilt as entirely as possible with new street layouts and modern buildings. So it cannot be underestimated that as democratic as we try to be, the strong personalities, if not the money, can often win. And I think in certain cases, we need to be a little less idealistic and realize that this is going to happen and make plans to work around or with such individuals. The impact of individuals is closely related to my second point about decision-making conflicts. Aside from individuals as roadblocks or facilitators, there were also many conflicts among groups in these scenarios, be they local authority officials, local MPs or councillors, local business people or landowners, or just concerned citizens. What's important to take from this historic example is the awareness that the resolution of these conflicts was in places so difficult that it resulted in a lack of progress or cohesiveness, and it often slowed down the processes of reconstruction or even stopped them dead. The actors in this process were often heavily invested, either financially or emotionally, in the outcomes 
of the plans. And I just want to note that in what we, the material we are given today, um, you've got a sheet that says some key learnings from the Friends of the Earth History and Policy Workshop. And in particular, I'm talking about number five, um, which basically says something very similar to what I've just said about people's investment in a place. So in particular, that what this meant, for example, that groups of landowners who were being told they would have to move their businesses, their business sites, which many may have had in their families for hundreds of, or hundred years or more, would band together and protest the plans. And these are just some examples of historic sites that no longer exist um, and um, some litigation in one of the cities where people were protesting uh, the plans. So whether the plans were agreeable to everyone else or not, whether they were actually good for the city, whether they were a supposed improvement to the city's physical layout, was irrelevant to many people or groups. So the lesson here is that selling progress of any kind can be very, very difficult if there are vested interests in the prevention of a plan or plans. So my third point is about economic impacts. And in the post-war period, this played a massive part in the outcomes of planning in cities. Now this can be true today to some extent, but in different ways. In the 1940s and 50s, the balance of payments crisis and the shortages of steel had key impacts on city plans and their implementation or their lack of. Britain was, at that time, wholly focused on exports and getting the economy back on its feet. The result was an incredibly slow process of rebuilding. Nothing in city centers started until around 1950 with most building work postponed by both rationing of steel and impacts of planning legislation until the mid-1950s. Economic factors also impacted what was built and what materials were used and more. So while today we have a, a rather more healthy economy, we also still have, for example, a housing crisis. So the impact today of city devolution might mean that there is a lack of central control, or perhaps in some cases no central control, on solutions for the housing situation, which may mean that cities make their own priorities and as shown, these may or may not be for the greater good. And if we devolve decision making, we should be aware that we may need a referee for conflict re resolution. And that's a, a function that the planning ministry in the post-war period fulfilled. They were a referee to the, to the conflict within cities. But going back to my, economic, my point about economics, one of the major impacts of the economic situation in the post-war period was that local authorities and central government had no funds to rebuild or redevelop land. The bulk of rebuilding and redevelopment was taken on by property developers, who later grew hugely in size and scope, in large part because of their involvement in post-war rebuilding. Bombed land in city centers, as well as central sites approved for clearance and redevelopment, were leased from cities by businesses, much of it on 100-year leases. What that means today is that we're seeing 1950s retail and commercial developments pulled down and rebuilt to create larger profit centers for both those developers who have inherited the leases and the cities who will increase their tax revenues from this redevelopment. So here are a few examples. This is Exeter, the 1950s development in Exeter and the current version of Princess Hay. 
and um, a couple of examples just in London and, and Liverpool. So we might be dealing with the economic impact of, of the city on these cities of the post-war situation for a long time to come because of the leases that have been granted to developers and the ability we're giving them to redevelop. Finally, and this is really the point where today's collaboration between history and policy and Friends of the Earth is most important, I think, is that we need to increase awareness of the historic fluidity of priorities in city planning. That is, that planning ideals and values were different 70 years ago and will always be evolving. The idealists of post-war planning in Britain saw the opportunities in reconstruction very differently, the opportunities for change very differently to how we might today. And we'll hear from another panelist about the evolution of environmental awareness. But in the case of post-war cities, we need to remember two important things. First, that the environment was not considered an important issue and that the circulation of and access for the automobile was considered a positive value and a planning priority. Recently, I heard a paper at a seminar attended by a number of prominent university teachers, researchers, and postgraduates. And the presenter was discussing 60s city plans and read out a quote from a planner to illustrate what he was describing. But this quote was read in an affected voice which mocked the language of the period and the context of the quote itself. And the seminar erupted in, la in laughter and I sat listening in anger because it's not for us to judge nor to laugh at the values of a prior generation. It's a great part of what history is made of. It's crucial to understand that those historic values, we have to understand them in order to make and to judge our own values for their future impacts. We cannot act as though choices are always flexible and fluid. Our decisions will have some degree of permanence and will impact future generations and their values may not overlap with ours. Here's an example of some of the values in 50s city planning and you can see that today you would probably view those drawings very differently from how they viewed them in the 50s. Um, I don't think anybody wants either of those things in their city but that's what was proposed in the 50s. So in Britain's post-war cities, modern forward-thinking visions, people who were implementing change, those were translated into what we now consider, using our contemporary values, to be less than desirable realities. And I believe we can learn from how and why those visions were implemented when we make decisions for our cities today. And I just want to leave you with the the overriding vision from the post-war period, which was that bombers had left us with a clean slate to do what we needed to do, what we wanted to do. Thank you.